This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. When we talk about the early days of the pandemic, we often talk about the world shutting down. And for many people, it did. But for some of us, it was just ramping up. My life was moving with such frenetic intensity that I barely had time to stop and think about what it meant that we were in a pandemic. This is Nikki, one of our Kasama Collective trainees. Nikki moved to Philadelphia in 2016 to get her MFA in creative writing. She has a lot of extended family in the area, so she visited Philly a lot as a kid. The city was already familiar to her when she moved there, but even so, it's taken a long time to find a place to live that feels like home. A few months before the pandemic, I'd moved into a community house and it was fine, but the people I was living with weren't close friends. And then in March, when everything shut down, it was like everyone suddenly realized that this wasn't who we wanted to be sticking this out with. Most of Nikki's roommates moved out or left town. The ones who stayed had a falling out with each other, so the house became a tense, lonely place to be. Nikki found herself avoiding being there and even went to stay with her sister for a couple of weeks. But her sister lived 40 minutes away and the only place for Nikki to stay there was on the living room couch. So eventually she came back. One of her roommates had already moved out. The other one had no plans to stay. Nikki's landlord promised to extend the lease because of the pandemic, but then changed his mind and told her that she had to move out too. I had two weeks to find a new place to live. I was moving so fast and I was working so hard to make something happen, but it felt like everything was spinning out of control and no one was really in it with me. I had already been feeling pretty isolated in that house, but trying to find roommates in a pandemic when no one wants to meet in person was incredibly stressful. I was looking at apartments and being interviewed for other community houses. I'd go to these interviews and smile and try to seem like I could be someone they wanted to live with. But underneath it all, I was really depressed. I remember there was a week where I just couldn't get out of bed. I felt like all the joy had been sucked out of me. I knew I should reach out to someone, but I couldn't even make myself do that. Most of my friends in the city were going through their own struggles. I finally did end up calling my mom and she comforted me, but I knew I had to figure things out, even if I just wanted someone else to take care of me. A couple of weeks later, Nikki heard about a community house from an acquaintance that she'd met once at a party. It turned out to be right around the corner from the place she was living at the time. But other than that one acquaintance, all of the people living there were total strangers. It was completely overwhelming to suddenly be in such close quarters with people I had just met. I wasn't in a great place emotionally, and even the thought of getting to know these new people was exhausting. But she quickly realized that she'd stepped into a community that was unlike any she'd ever known. Her housemates spent time together, not just as roommates, but as friends. It was as if I was stepping out of this separate, lonely existence where I had to work so hard to take care of myself and stepping into this restful, restorative community that valued me not for what I could do, but for who I am. 
And then, one Friday evening when Nikki was on her way out the door, she walked into the living room and was struck by a feeling that was both intensely familiar and completely new. When I stepped into the room, I actually jumped a little. It startled me. It was this palpable sense of calm, like time had stopped and the world had pushed pause. It was like I'd stumbled not into a scene, but a feeling of love and quiet and security. There were white candles. The spread on the table was beautiful, soft, warm light. The word that comes to mind is one I almost never use, holy. It felt like I was finally home. Nikki knew what she was seeing because she knew that her housemate Jake was Jewish. He'd even invited her to join him in practicing Shabbat a few days before she moved in. Jake grew up Shomer Shabbos. We asked Jake to describe, in his own words, what this means. Shabbat is a collective journey of consciousness towards joy, peace, freedom, appreciation, and rest as Jews that we take from Friday night at sundown through the end of Saturday night when three stars come out in the sky. They didn't turn lights on or off, drive their car, or do chores. Practicing Shabbat wasn't just about refraining from work. It was also a day for inviting guests into their home, eating good food, and walking to the synagogue together. Those rituals and rhythms gave Jake a blueprint not just for his spirituality, but for his life. There's so many aspects of Shabbat I love. That's one of them, that feeling, that complete rest. There's so much doing in my life. There's so much doing all the time. In our culture, there's so much value placed on work and movement and productivity. It feels profoundly countercultural and nourishing to actively say, I'm on a different set of values here. I'm on a different track. I'm not prioritizing doing, but I'm prioritizing being. Sitting around a table with people and having nowhere to go besides just being with the food and with each other and singing, there's this sense of joy that emerges when you're building Shabbat with others that is just so precious to me. Nikki isn't Jewish. She grew up attending an Assemblies of God church, but it had been a long time since she was part of that faith community. As a child, I loved going to church. There was this incredible community. It was this collective catharsis around loud and expressive singing, and I did encounter God there. But there was always this part of the service that left me feeling anxious. When the pastor's voice would escalate in prayer, suggesting that someone in the room wasn't right with God, our pianist would begin to play, and I could feel my chest tighten. Is it me? Am I the unrighteous person in the room? I stopped going to church because I realized it was a complicated place for me, one where I sometimes felt God's presence, and then other times I felt these conflicting emotions and underlying guilt, like I'd done something wrong. By then, I was also starting to question some of the things I'd been taught there. Their silence on the LGBTQ community in particular was something that I never understood or supported. Having friends who were queer really opened my whole world and suddenly it just wasn't okay anymore. When Nikki walked into that candlelit room and saw Jake practicing Shabbat, it was immediately attractive to her. Not just because it was beautiful, but because it felt like something she hadn't known she'd been missing. She'd been working so hard to take care of herself, trying to regain control even as the world was shutting down. 
And here was this moment where she could let go of it all and just be. It's a feeling that Jake values too. I've always been drawn to those moments of being, of pure appreciation of the moment. Shabbat practice doesn't immediately grant these experiences of presence or joy or of rest, but it makes space for that. There's a felt sensation that I have where I just feel completely at ease and at peace. And I know that there's this whole busy world that awaits on the other side, but I'm in this world and I'm not in that world yet. The idea of Shabbat, a day of rest, is one that I can get behind wholeheartedly in theory, but I'm not very good at practicing it. I grew up in the church like Nikki, so my family's Sabbath happened on Sundays. There were certain rituals that we protected, going to church, having lunch together as a family, sometimes hosting guests in our home. But if I'm honest, those days were never really about rest. They were about finishing homework or doing chores or squeezing in a little more time with my friends. My dad is a physician, so it wasn't unusual for him to get a page right in the middle of church and have to rush off to do an emergency surgery. When I met my husband, Nate, all of my ideas about Sabbath were put to the test. His family practice of the Sabbath was closer to Jake's. They didn't go to the store, didn't do work around the house, and they had popcorn for dinner so Nate's mom could get a break from the cooking. It was a day for church, rest, and service, like visiting a nearby nursing home. Often, his dad would take a nap. Before we had kids, this wasn't hard to duplicate. But once we had kids, Sundays became one of the least restful days of the week. Even now, when our kids are finally at an age where they don't constantly need us, Sunday is a day where the pressures of the week loom large. There are groceries to buy, bills to pay, laundry to do, meals to plan and prep, doctor and dentist appointments to schedule, kid birthday parties to attend, school drop-offs and pickups to coordinate, parent-teacher conferences to put on the calendar, permission slips to fill out. On the rare occasion that we actually manage to stay on top of all of that, there's an endless list of house projects and yard work and friends and family that we haven't managed to call in weeks. Often, I feel behind before the week has even started. I want to take a Sabbath. I would love nothing more than to take a day of rest, but I rarely feel like I can. Over the years, this has become a point of tension between Nate and me, which made Sunday feel even less restful. He'd nag me about being on my computer or running errands, and I would retort, you know this stuff isn't going to get done on its own, right? But when I hear Jake talk about Shabbat, I'm reminded of why it's a day worth fighting for. In Jewish tradition, the first three days of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, are lit up, are illuminated by the previous Shabbat. The next three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, are illuminated by the coming Shabbat. So there's not a single day of the week that isn't in some capacity illuminated by Shabbat. And once I tap into that frame shift, a little bit of that attitude cannot help but seep into the rest of my week. I've heard this concept before from the church I attend now, that the Sabbath is the day that sets the tone for the rest of the week. And to be fair, we have tried to practice it. Years ago, we made Saturday our bill-paying day, the day when we would attempt to get the house back in order after a frenzied week. But it was also a day of helping reluctant kids with homework, of negotiating sibling fights, of multitasking and never finishing what we started. We didn't dispute our need for the light of a true Sabbath in our week, but we were still in the dark about how to get there. Saturday mornings tend to be the best day for me to talk to my mom, who works a night shift Saturday through Wednesday night. This gives me only a small window of time to talk to her. 
Yet Jewish tradition understands honoring one's parents to be a mitzvah or sacred commandment. Instead of introducing firm boundaries around a Shabbat practice, I've taken a more flexible approach, and this has meant including telephone conversations with my mom. Embracing Shabbat in this way has made me more mindful of how I'm using technology and participating in the frenetic energy of our contemporary world. Practicing Shabbat hasn't just made Nikki more mindful of her own need for rest. It's made her realize that we all need rhythms of restoration. There's an organization I found recently called the Green Sabbath Project, and their vision of a Sabbath feels a lot like Jake's. They contemplate what a day without driving, shopping, and building would look like, and believe that a day of collective rest would benefit not just humanity, but also our Earth. On their website, they have this. Nothing may be the best thing you can do. One day every week, do nothing. Take a weekly day of rest. Make it a real Sabbath for you, for Earth. Jake has been taking classes from a Jewish organization called Allah. And in one of his classes, Jake read a speech by Wendell Berry called Health is Membership. Berry is an American poet, environmental activist, and farmer who believes that the community, not the individual, is the smallest unit of health. This is an idea that comes up in Judaism too, in the concept of Shemitah, which applies Shabbat to our relationship with land and society. Shemitah refers to the sabbatical year, or the seventh year in a cycle when the land is allowed to go fallow and rest. The entire community rests in this way. Think about the permaculture techniques you would really need to be employing and the care you would need to have for the land and thinking in terms of cycles and not just quarterly cycles of profit like corporations tend to think in, but seven year or at the next level of scale, 49 years or 50 years, the Jubilee is every 50th year. And it's a massive kind of cancellation of debt. All debts are forgiven in the biblical version of the Jubilee. Now, was this actually practiced during what periods? These are questions we could discuss. But what would the ecological implications of that actually be if we were to practice that as a community, as a globe? That concept of Shemitah, that seventh year of Sabbath rest for the land, is a significant one for me. The year before we got married, Nate and I encountered that passage of scripture that Jake is referring to in the book of Leviticus. And we were so struck by it that we decided to reorder our lives around it. We got married in 2003, and seven years later, we quit our jobs, our version of working the fields, and spent a year in the Philippines. It was a year that changed us forever, that I wrote about way back in season one in episode 30, the sabbatical year. That experience transformed our worldview so significantly that we spent the years since then planning for the next one, this time in Mexico. If not for the pandemic, that's where we would have been in 2020, stepping off the treadmill of American work culture and taking our year of Shabbat. But hearing Jake talk about that practice now, I'm struck with a new realization. That year in Manila wasn't an easy one. It was one of the hardest years of our lives. We were volunteering with sex trafficking survivors and we were rebuilding a marriage that had been crumbling for years. It wasn't a year of rest, but it was a year of restoration. Some of the most powerful moments were the quiet ones, washing dishes with the women or walking arm in arm with them down the street. No one cared what we had accomplished or how much money we made in our previous lives. 
We were enough simply because we were there, being present in those relationships, learning how little all of the accomplishments and busyness of that old life mattered. The idea of a Sabbath year has guided us. It's pushed us to take a step back from the frenzy of life and ask how we can reorder our lives, not around work, but restoration. As Nikki's grown to love Shabbat, she's also found another restoration. When I was first getting to know Jake, I knew we were friends when I accidentally introduced a pantry moth infestation into our shared cabinet, and he just laughed when his five-pound bag of pandemic beans had baby moth worms living in them. Nikki became part of Jake's community. Five years after moving to Philadelphia, she finally felt at home. And then, one day, everything changed. Jake and I were hanging out in our neighborhood park, and he told me he had feelings for me. I immediately rejected him and told him I wasn't interested. To understand this moment, we have to go back further, to a few years ago when Nikki was living in another part of the city. One of her housemates was a co-worker at the coffee shop where she was working at the time. And since their rooms were across the hall from each other, they'd often chat in the hallway at night as they were headed to bed. Sometimes they'd stand there for hours talking, and through those conversations, they became close. They talked about traveling the world together, and though they never spoke about it, Nikki knew that she'd fallen in love with him. She was certain that he was in love with her too. She figured it was just a matter of time before they'd talk about their feelings for each other. Nikki's housemate went out of town for a wedding, and she decided that when he got back, she'd finally tell him how she felt. But when he came back, he told her that he'd met someone at the wedding who lived just a few hours away and she was coming to visit. That night, Nikki was in her room when she heard a woman's voice in the hall. And then she heard her housemate's voice and the door to his room closed behind them. From that point on, Nikki started finding reasons not to be home. She would come home late whenever her housemate's girlfriend visited. Eventually, he told her that he had had feelings for Nikki, but he hadn't wanted to act on them because he didn't want to date someone that he was living with. I was devastated. He'd known that I was in love with him, and he acted like maybe something could finally happen between us. But the whole time, he was dating this other woman. Eventually, he moved out, and we lost touch. A year later... He came into the same coffee shop where he told me he had feelings for me. I had started working there as a barista, and of course he saw me, but he stood there looking as if he had never known me. When Jake told Nikki that he had feelings for her, all of the pain of that memory came rushing back. I had been so hurt. I was so afraid to open myself up and trust anyone. Jake was disappointed when Nikki rejected him, but it didn't change their friendship. Jake was different. He didn't give up on me. We agreed to meet the next day at a nearby pond where turtles like to sunbathe and there are these flat, smooth rocks next to the water. It felt like our own secret spot. Even though I was terrified of losing his friendship if we dated, I asked Jake what he was looking for in a relationship. Just by asking this question, I had finally admitted that I did have feelings for him. He then suggested that we both journal about our commitments to ourselves, along with our relationship visions. I thought this was such a beautiful concept, and it made me like Jake even more. As she journaled, Nikki realized that what she wanted in a relationship was what she'd seen in Jake. 
someone who was more interested in living intentionally and bringing restoration to the people and places around him than racking up accomplishments or trying to impress other people. She realized that what she'd experienced with Jake was the same feeling that she'd had when she stumbled into that candlelit room on a Friday night. That sense that she could stop all of the striving and hurrying and just be herself. When we did sit down and have that conversation, I felt more connected to myself than I had in a long time. Discussing our relationship visions made me realize how our shared love for spirituality is really what drew us together. I asked Nikki if she's planning on converting to Judaism, if she would continue practicing Shabbat even if Jake weren't in her life, and she said she would. It's become that central for her. Telling others that I'm most likely booked on a Friday night to rest feels so countercultural to the ways I imagine everyone else is spending their Friday night. That being said, no one I have ever spoken to about the Shabbat practice has ever said that I'm weird. And I wonder if it's because we could all make room for more rest in our lives. The rabbis of the Talmud recorded hundreds of discussions about the particulars of how Shabbat should be practiced. One of them involves what to do if an animal is in pain, and its pain can only be relieved by violating Shabbat. Do you help the animal or let it suffer? The answer is the former. You see echoes of this kind of thinking in the Christian tradition too, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath and invites judgment from religious leaders. Sabbath isn't just about rest, it's about being restored, or in Jake's words, illuminated. I think the real challenge about taking a Sabbath isn't just that we need to stop what we're doing for 24 hours, it's that taking a true Sabbath means changing the rest of your week leading up to it. For me, taking a Sabbath isn't just about rest. It's about having what I need to face another week. This is not to say that I find all of those household and life chores to be restorative. I find them every bit as exhausting as they sound. But if I'm ever going to truly rest and be restored on a weekly basis, then something fundamental in my life needs to change. This past week, Nate and I finally had a conversation about Sabbath that got us somewhere helpful. Hearing Jake and Nikki talk about Shabbat, it's clear that it's not just about what does or doesn't happen on the day of rest. It's a three-step process of preparation, purpose, and protection. Preparation was the part that we sometimes did, getting all of those annoying chores done on Saturday. But the purpose of all having the vision of our Sabbath as the focal point of the week, the day that would illuminate all of the rest, wasn't there. If our whole family prized the Sabbath as the most important day of the week, the one we desperately needed so that we could be restored, then it would be a day worth making sacrifices for. It would mean sometimes saying no to things on Saturday so we could ensure the necessary preparation for Sunday. This is no small challenge, and I'm still not sure if we can do it. The San Francisco Bay Area is a culture of activity, of doers. As an entrepreneur, I felt grateful to come home to that. But Jake's reminder of how necessary Sabbath is to our collective health and the ideas of preparation, purpose, and protection to get us there feels like a ray of light. What new meanings might emerge if we began centering rest as the life-giving pinnacle of existence it is meant to be? In his book, The Sabbath, Its Meaning for Modern Man, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes that the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. Rest is not a means toward an end to increase our productivity. 
I don't think swimming in a sea of stimulations to escape out of our exhausted lives is the end that is meant for us. Aristotle said that character is formed by repeated actions. If we never rest, we become restless. If we're always consuming, we become consumers. In 1950, only 5% of grocery stores were open on Sundays. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a grocery store that isn't. In 1950, about three-quarters of Americans were members of a church, synagogue, or mosque. Today, that number is less than half. If we take those numbers as proxies for Sabbath consciousness, does that mean that we're trading keeping the lights on for shoppers, for letting the light into our souls? In his essay, Door Close, Jack Chang raises questions about how smartphones are affecting us, but his writing applies to larger issues of consumerism and rest as well. He writes, another consequence of an increasingly on-demand world is that we have virtually eliminated waiting. But often, the most important changes in our lives spring out of such moments of repose, from having the time to reflect on a path we falsely believed we had desired and abandoning it in favor of something with a fuzzier outcome. Meaning is born out of uncertainty. It is the realization of an end or a goal we were not aware existed. Sometimes we climb to the top of the trees and discover that we're there not for the fruits, but for the view. In my day-to-day life, I don't need any convincing that I need a day of rest. The effects of not getting enough rest, of my lack of Sabbath, are obvious. I'm fitting too much into my days, so I'm not sleeping as much or as well at night. Sleep deprivation reduces empathy, unsurprisingly, and so I rush through my days slurping coffee and struggling to feel sympathetic when my four-year-old sobs because she can't understand why she needs to wear proper shoes to school. Driving my kids to school is like seeing my stress personified. Angry drivers lay on their horns and run red lights. We're all in such a hurry, late to get where we're going, living in a constant state of agitation. I can't help wondering if some of our collective challenges, the bitter divisions in politics and values, the biting tone of so much public discourse, our chronic tendency toward consumerism, stem at least in part from our societal reluctance to not just distract ourselves with entertainment, but to truly rest. Jake and I have now been together for a year. I've recently looked back at the commitments I made to myself when I first started dating Jake and I've realized that all of them have come true. I've discovered firsthand the joy of purposeful living. I have become more conscious of everything because of my Shabbat practice, but I still don't practice Shabbat every Friday night. Sometimes Fridays are the only time I can hang out with one of my friends or see an event I don't want to miss. I haven't managed to be completely off my phone for 24 hours either. The joy of purposeful living found through practices of rest. Easy to say, but much harder to do. Shalom is a Hebrew word, meaning peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. We need Shabbat Shalom because that sense of holiness that Nikki felt brings us back to the core of who we are, human beings with the innate potential to reflect the light of the divine. On my worst days, this idea feels impossible. 
But when I'm able to pause long enough to remember my need for rest and restoration, that illumination Jake talked about does feel possible. I remember that at my best, I can reflect light and even joy to those around me. That's what Sabbath can do for us. It's the truest, most essential form of rest. It's still hard for me to take a Sabbath, and I think it probably always will be, but maybe this is exactly why I need it. I think it's a worthy struggle because it forces me to slow down, to stop doing and just be. If you're still not convinced that you need a Sabbath, then I want to invite you to try it, maybe just once, maybe even this week. Take a day of rest. The website sabbathmanifesto.org has a great list of principles that are inspired by Jewish tradition, but they're beneficial to all of us. I'll include that link in the show notes for today. I want to close today with a blessing that Jake says often that's become important for Nikki too, and for me. May the Lord bless you with Sabbath peace. May the Lord bless you with Sabbath joy. May the Lord bless you with Sabbath holiness. As always, if you listen to the very end of the episode, you'll hear Shelter in Place outtakes, our little Easter egg to thank you for sticking around. We also want to take a moment to thank Sony for their generous donation of headphones, which our Kasama Collective trainees are now using to help us create Shelter in Place episodes. Our Kasama Collective training program is now a nonprofit, and we're always looking for partnerships and sponsors to help us launch these new creators into careers in audio storytelling. If you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Shelter in Place, we would love to hear from you. As always, you can find show notes, details about our Kasama Collective training program, and sign up for our newsletter at shelterinplacepodcast.org. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. Nikki Schaefer was our lead writer for this episode. Nathan Wizard was our assistant producer, and Zara Krim was our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director, Sarah Edgel is our design director, and our amazing season three Kasama Collective trainees are Bethany Hawkins, Hannah Fowler, Meridian Waters, Nathan Wizard, Nikki Schaefer, and Zara Krim. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now if you're still listening, Here's a little outtake. I was reading recently that Shabbat is like a date with God. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I, I absolutely do think of it that way. If not date, then appointment. I mean, this is a time to, to check in. Can you talk to me a bit about how Shabbat fits into our relationship? I'm not sure what you mean by how it fits. Do you mean like how we practice Shabbat? Yeah. Well, if you want me to be warm and fuzzy, I guess. Gosh, I love to take Shabbat with you. It's a chance to be present with each other, which has been lovely. Cooking and eating together, lighting candles. <laughs> Being around you feels like a kind of Shabbat a lot of the time. In the oh. sense of, <laughs> puts me into that mode. I'm not sure I understand the question, though. <laughs> you answered it.